Please take your Bibles with me as we turn together to Isaiah 53 this evening. If you'll turn with me and join me in Isaiah 53, we are continuing our study on these Lord's Supper evenings as we study God's Word together. And we pick up here in verse 7, Isaiah chapter 53, coming to verse 7. And our title tonight for our text is where the prophet here is introducing us to these different varied understandings of the coming servant of God. And here we come to the silent servant. Our text is one that feels to us naturally one of tension, one that is unusual to our flesh, but we praise the Lord for the silent servant. Already in our study, as you'll have your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 53, already in our study, just by way of review, we've come to look at this explanation that is given as to all the reasons that this coming servant would be rejected. Verse 2, we've already studied and walked through beginning at the end of chapter 52, but look, moving into chapter 53, his lowly origin and his birth would be a major obstacle to his people. Verse 2 tells us, That when he comes, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. And what we saw was that these humble beginnings were too plain for the people of God. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a mighty man, if you will, to come riding in on a white horse to save them from Rome. And so his understated, lowly origin and birth was not something that his people wanted. And so that's why they rejected him. We also saw in verse 2 that his physical appearance was a stumbling block. If you had a Messiah coming to save you and to redeem you, what would you want him to look like? And his people struggled with a romanticized version of, of a hero just like people today do. The text tells us that God's ways are, are not our ways. He has no form, the text says, or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This coming Messiah, Jesus, when he came, would not necessarily be known for his physique. He would not be known as a mighty warrior king in the way that they understood it, say, like David. He would not be tall, head and shoulders above the crowd like Saul. He would not be like Solomon. Verse 2 of Isaiah 53 says, he had no exact form or comeliness that when you saw him you would say oh there he is there he is there's the messiah there's the one who's come to save us another of the many reasons of why his people rejected him then we saw in verse three that his life was one of marked sorrow today in our country there is a focus if you will namely on the term of say happiness And so that stands in contrast to the fact that the the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, his life was one of sorrow. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In other words, there was a gravitas to his life and ministry, and it was one that was acquainted with, he was acquainted with, grief and sorrow. In fact, as we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, just to remind you, Matthew 10, 36, that we'll be coming to, he was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds. 
burden for them. Burden not only for their physical needs of which he was willing to heal them of, but burden for them spiritually as sheep having no shepherd. We saw this morning that his life is one nonstop journey where rest is fleeting. Rest is not something that is a mainstay for him. We know what the lack of rest does to our persons, our health, our bodies. Amongst the many things that Jesus bore upon his shoulders, he was a man of sorrows. John chapter 21 verse 25 reminds us that there are also many other things which Jesus did, which John says, if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. The point is this, Jesus' life was designated as, this is a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, and the miracle collections that we have are just simply a sample size of his everyday life and ministry. Some of you who are acquainted with first aid, you've been in first responder types of service, you've worked in medical, the medical community, you've worked in serving the public in different ways. There, that's a special community. Our armed services, those individuals see what society doesn't have to see. Nurses and doctors in the hospitals see things that require or cause within them PTSD, trauma, scarring. We can understand that to a limited, under, like in a limited way. But here, this is the, the Son of Man. This is the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. Verses 4 through 6 give us an explanation as to why the sinless Messiah would suffer like he did. Notice there with me. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The very saving work that he came to achieve and to perform is the very reason why his people rejected him. If this is truly the Messiah, then why does he look like that? Why is he dying on a cursed tree? Verse 5 says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now the Jews knew this. It just wasn't what they wanted. Last time together we saw in verse 6 the introduction of, to this metaphor of an animal. And this particular animal that is given to us is that of a sheep. Continued in the verse tonight, verse 7, of a lamb. Notice in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. So we look at Christ's suffering on the, on the cross. He did not suffer for his own sin, but for the sin of his people. It's why when Matthew announced in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, after explaining the reasons why Christ would suffer there in verses 4 through 6, now we move to a new transition in the chapter. Verses 7 through 10 gives us the historical order and the means of how Christ would accomplish complete salvation for his people. Our focus tonight, the theme of the message, is simply the quiet submission of the Savior. The obedience of Christ. The beauty of the obedience of Christ. And that's what verse 7 points out, is His obedience. And what we will see in verse 8 is His death. Verse 9, His burial. 
In verse 10, his resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, a succinct summary of the gospel. Notice here, for I delivered to you, first of all, Paul says in his preaching ministry, he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice that theme that Paul gives, according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Scriptures like Isaiah 53 that were written 700 years before the coming of the Messiah. Again, friends, if you ever struggle and wonder, uh, is God's Word what it says it is? Friends, it is. Rest in the sufficiency and power and authenticity and validity of the Word of God. You can have absolute confidence in the Word of God. And what we're seeing in Isaiah 53 is just one of thousands of proof texts that prove to us that Jesus is who He says He is. So the theme of our study tonight is this, the willingness and the obedience of Christ. In fact, if we could give it a key word, it's simply this, submission. A submissive Lord. A submissive Lamb to the Master. Now as we note here, as we look into the text, the first thing we see is that, just by way of introduction, Jesus did not come as an unwilling servant, Savior, sufferer. You say, LeGrand, why do you make that distinction? We know that. And I have no doubt that you know that. But many people are confused on this point. I've heard messages where preachers will stand up and talk about how Christ did not want to come. It's as if the Father twisted His arm to come for His people. Blasphemy. In fact, one of the chief proponents of a man who preached a defining message on the unwillingness of Christ, you could say. Our theme is the willingness and submission of Christ. His was the whole tenor of the message is in prison. For, the, for, for many, many years due to other situations. But this man was famous for this theme. He would hit it again and again and again in his preaching. He had a fake conversation between Jesus and God the Father of this conversation where Jesus did not want to go. Friends, that's not what we see. What we see here is the beautiful submission of the Savior Lamb in verse 7 to the Father. All throughout the history of the Jews, the Jewish people, they were very intimate with and very familiar to sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice. In fact, if you remember, Abraham said to Isaac, to Isaac's question, God will provide for himself a lamb. Father, where is the sacrifice? God will provide for himself a lamb. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And they understood that. They had been instructed that sin causes death and that the soul that sins, it shall die, the prophet says. Going back to Abel and Cain, God gave instructions for the ways to carry out appropriate worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And the theme was constantly this. Every animal that died in the shedding of blood is that there must be a penalty paid for sin. Someone must account for that sin. Something, the shedding of blood, must account for sins committed. Again and again, sacrifices were slain by the tens of thousands as the people of God every Passover from Exodus chapter 12 and on would slay the animals and the shedding of blood, reminding them that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God would send a forerunner as we have seen. John the Baptist would be the voice crying in a wilderness, preaching the message of repentance and that the kingdom of God has come. And then, one day, Jesus comes walking 
John is preaching his heart out to the people that are present there that day, and he sees Jesus, and he points to him. Do you remember what he says in John chapter 1, verse 29? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, notice how John does not introduce Jesus. He does not say, Behold your king. Behold, and gives him a number of the titles that would be rightfully his. John places emphasis on the fact that this is the humble Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, thus fulfilling a prophecy that was given in Isaiah 53, 700 years earlier, what we see here tonight, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Very quickly, I want us to notice very simply, number one, the discipline of his submission. The discipline of his submission. Verse 7 tells us he was, now notice these words, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Jesus' ministry was one that was constant oppression. He experienced constant affliction. As we pointed out previously, he was designated as a man of sorrows. And this type of description of his ministry was not limited to simply the Passion Week or the Hill of Golgotha. In fact, you could give a summary of his life in ministry as simply this. He was oppressed. He was despised. He was disrespected. He was afflicted. In fact, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16, and I want us to see just a, a vignette of the very first sermon that Jesus preaches in Nazareth. The reason this is of note and distinction was surely... Out of all the places Jesus will minister and preach, surely his hometown will accept him. Surely those who've seen him grow, as Luke chapter 2 verse 42 tells us, he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with both God and man. Not much is told us of Jesus' childhood and teenage years and growing up years, but that's it. He's not known for any ill repute or Ill, Ill report. He simply grew in wisdom, favor, and stature with both God and man. Surely, if there was any place on the map where Jesus would be accepted, it would be in Nazareth. Now just read with me a couple of verses, verse 16 down through verse 22. Again, there's so many themes here that are consistent and connect with how Jesus fulfills prophecy. We saw that this morning. We see it regularly. We see it again here in this text. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In other words, you could say Jesus regularly went and joined himself with the professed people of God. This was his habit. Jesus went to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, just, just by way of commentary, you got to remember, they know Jesus can teach the Word of God. Jesus is, stuns them. I mean, if you remember, it, the, the key moment of his growing up years was when at the age of 12, he was apart from Joseph and Mary. They're on their way back home, and they come back, and they're searching for him, and they find him, and he, there he is in the temple, and he's mystifying the aged men who study the Word, study the law, who know the deep mysteries of God. 
And yet here is a 12-year-old who's gone to none of their schools, hasn't gone through any of the qualifications that are the standard path of preparation. They're blown away by him. So it's not unusual that they would turn to Jesus and say, here, you can read the scriptures this morning. But here, Jesus does more than read the scriptures. So he comes into the synagogue and he stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. Now you'll notice verse 18, some of you may have a Bible that quotes, if you will, in italicized form. It's one of the reasons I enjoy reading from the New American Standard, the New King James. It'll let you know through an italicized form what is being quoted from in the Old Testament. Here he quotes Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, and I believe the reference is uh, verses 8 and 9. Verse 18, this is Isaiah 49, 8 and 9. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, just by way of reference, to kind of give you a little bit of the gravitas of the scene, remember at the end of Matthew chapter 7, when those who had heard him give the Sermon on the Mount were stunned because he spoke as one having authority. Jesus' reading of the scriptures was not like what they were used to, and our mind can only imagine, but this is the Word, reading the Word. This is the Word made flesh, reading prophecies that relate to Him. It was certainly powerful. Blessed, anointed of the Spirit. He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. All the eyes were fixed upon Him, and He began to say to them, Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Lest you don't understand what I just read. I am the Messiah. This is his first message. This is to his hometown. This is to people who've seen him grow up in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense of derision here. There's a sense of, well, we know his uncle, aunt, and kinfolk and they're from so-and-so county and you know how we talk in the south this is that vernacular <laughs> is this not joseph's son is this not the carpenter's son and he said to them you will surely say this proverb to me physician heal yourself whatever we have heard done in capernaum do also here in your country then he said assuredly i say to you no prophet is accepted in his own country but i tell you truly many widows were in israel in the days of elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to the woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogues, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Hey, listen, Jesus has been teaching the doctrine of election since the very beginning. And the response was the same to Jesus. So preachers, next time, or Christians, or next time you're, you're sharing some truth or some, some truth of the Word of God to a friend, don't get discouraged that people hate it and reject it. This is what Jesus is talking about here. The immediate response is simply the gnashing of teeth. When they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and indignation. 
This wrath is not simply internal, as most of it was in other accounts. They literally, verse 29, rose up and thrust him out of the city. This is the rejection of Christ. And listen, all he's done is read the Bible. (laughs) All he's done is quote Scripture with authority and power. They rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built and they might have thrown him down over the cliff. Notice the transition from 29 to 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. This is just simply a vignette of what Christ went through in his earthly ministry. We don't see him arguing and raging. We see him simply fulfilling in obedience to the will of the Father. He was disciplined and he submitted to the Father's plan. Every step of his life was one of living for the audience of one. And that was with his eyes upon his Father. There's a discipline in his silence. Jesus does not take time to argue for his own vindication ever, except within the Father's will. What we see here in this reference is simply a vignette of where Christ is experiencing oppression and rejection. As we'll see in our continued study of Matthew's gospel, he's about to be accused of, with these miracle works that he is doing, of being demon-possessed, of being of Beelzebub, of being of, the, of Satan. And yet, he is the example of a sheep before her shearers. Now, this example is given to us of a sheep coming before her shearers in the same way that a sheep is, is quiet, is meek, is submitted to this coat being shorn, if you will, with the scissors. Everything would be taken away from him. How does Jesus respond? Ultimately, Jesus' dignity would be taken away, particularly upon the cross. His honesty and what he's accused of, his character, his respect. The people that Jesus is coming to minister to have a disdain for him. Jesus came to a people that he knew, you could say, would have a disdain for him. And this is what makes faith so beautiful when we see it. This morning we saw such a vignette, a beautiful faith in the backdrop of of cynicism, of unbelief, of those who question everything Jesus is saying, even accusing him of being a worker for Satan. Here this sheep has come and he gives up himself and he pays the debt that was due unto us. He paid the wages of sin. He comes to save his people eternally. Before the Father, he comes as a sheep. As verse 7 tells us, going back to Isaiah 53. Oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Time and time again, when you read the accounts of Jesus, his submission to the Father's will is striking, and it is stunning. Ultimately, his submission is evidenced in his silence, as we saw from the Scripture reading this evening, during his trials, his unjust trials. Christ would not dignify by an answer the many foolish questions that was asked of him and the accusations that were made of him at his trials. Matthew 27, 12 tells us, He answered nothing. Matthew 27, 14, then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? In other words, Pilate's saying it's normal for someone to defend themselves. This is a trial. Give us the evidence. Defend yourself. 
Do you not hear, Pilate said, how many things they are bringing against you? They testify against you, verse 14, but he answered him not a word. So that Pilate, the governor, marveled greatly. Pilate marveled because he knew in his conscience this man is absolutely innocent. He is who he says he is. He is not worthy of the crimes he's being accused of, and yet he doesn't even defend himself. This is otherworldly. In fact, Mark chapter 15, verse 5, commentating on this passage, says he marveled. He was blown away at Jesus' actions and response. Luke 23, verse 9, when he came before not only Pilate, but when he came before Herod, we see again this prophecy fulfilled, this lamb being brought before its shearers, being dumb and being silent before Herod. Then they questioned him many words, but he answered him nothing, nothing. Friends, do you not feel the tension in the text? Do you not ever feel like there's an unjustness or a a vindication that's needed when you hear maybe of some small in comparison and some type of parallel, something that you experience in your life that might be unjust in, in your feelings or in your opinion. And you think, I want justice. I want things to be made right, if you will. Here, look to the Lamb who submitted to the Father's will, who was content to follow the will of the Father, to rest in His judgment, to rest in His purposes, rest in His will. The silence of Christ that his trials would fulfill Old Testament prophecy, would frustrate his enemies who were accusing him, and ultimately will condemn the false accusations and the foolish questions that are asked of him. This is the discipline of the Lamb. The discipline of the Lamb as he submits to the Father. Whenever this Messiah comes, how, we, how will we know he's the Messiah? This is the question we're constantly asking. How can we believe? How can we rest? How can we trust? And the answers to that question are varied and many. Here we see the answer to that question is, is notice how he fulfills prophecy in the ways that he is quiet. Secondly, we see not only the discipline, but we see the difficulty of this. The difficulty. Verse 7 says, And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The difficulty, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. The difference in this lamb, the lamb of God, from the natural lambs, created animals, was the fact that while they may not know what they're heading to, he knew what he was coming to. He came willingly. He submitted to the Father with great joy. In verse 6, we saw that in the same way a sinner is likened to a sheep in its wanderings. In verse 7, we see that the Savior, the servant, is likened to a lamb and that he is being brought to a slaughter. And he does it willingly, joyfully, on his way to the cross. Christ knew why he was coming. He was coming to save his people. He was coming to collect a bride. He's coming to submit to the Father's will. In fact, he said, lo, said he, he said, I come to do thy will, O God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, we see how the writer of Hebrews expounds for us how Christ's death fulfills God's will. And he says this, he says, Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering, speaking of the Father, you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. 
In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, notice here, that he may establish the second. By that, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here we see Jesus joyfully, silently, submitting to the will of God in his life. Submitting to the Father, surrender to the Father, coming to do that which glorifies the Father. And so when we see the cross, this perfect, beautiful Lamb of God, silent and quiet, coming to the cross, we see that the cross reveals for all time, to all of mankind, Christ at His best, man at His very worst. Behold the Lamb of God, who submits to the will of the Father, who is quiet, who submits to the plan of God. Behold the mystery, the wondrous mystery, I'm not even touching the depths of the service. I feel like I am like a child in kindergarten playing with a, some type of advanced degree and trying to wade through the waters of Isaiah 53. I have no shame in telling you that. This is the deep, 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 deep. This is the Mariana Trench of the pool, of the ocean. It's deep, friends. But it's beautiful. It's glorious. I want us to close as we prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord with Acts chapter 8, verse 32. And you say, now that sounds unusual. Why would we look into Acts chapter 8, verse 32? Well, let's turn there together, and we'll see. Now, this is a singular text that we've looked at out of a larger prophecy of Isaiah 53. But notice, and behold, the power of God, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, working both in the hearts of men working through His Word to create faith, and those who will hear, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Look how God works. Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> in fact, back up with me if you don't mind, just very quickly, if you go up to verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now here, this is the history of the church, fast-paced, fast-moving. Exciting things are happening. The gospel is powerful. It's exploding. The church is growing. As we see in the next chapter, Saul is about to, Paul is about to become Saul as he's converted. But here, just before all of that, the text tells us, verse 26 of Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said to him, Do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, How can I, unless someone helps me and guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. Out of all the places in all the Old Testament, what led this man to faith in Christ? Well, this is just a Sunday night. The text is Isaiah 53, verse 7. What can that do other than remind us of the finished work of Christ? 
And I'm not saying any of you have said that. I'm just trying to revive our hearts. Out of all the verses of Scripture, this is what this man is reading. He is led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Now notice, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now they came and went down to the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, well, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, listen. What a beautiful reminder that this not only fulfills prophecy, this saves souls. People come and read this passage and are awakened. And here in this reference in the history of the church in Acts chapter 8, by the sovereign spirit of God leading his, his servant Philip to encounter a man, notice the emphasis by the Holy Spirit, this is desert. And like, what's in the desert? Nothing is in the desert except when the Holy Spirit of God directs your steps and has you with a divine encounter to preach Christ to a, a pagan lost but yet seeking. And Philip does exactly that and this man is gloriously saved. What a beautiful text. What a beautiful reminder for us as we consider and meditate upon he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we're constantly astounded and mystified at how it connects the beauty and power and authority and glory of your truth. It is trustworthy. We can have confidence and we can rest in it. And Father, we do that here tonight. Father, we look back and have confidence in your word. We stand amazed at the Lamb of God who was slain for us. The Lamb who stood before his shears and was silent. He opened not his mouth. Father, in obedience to the Lord's command, we come this evening to remember your atoning work for us with joy. Father, to examine our hearts, to revel in the mystery of the glorious gospel of Christ to give thanks to you for the day that your spirit came to us just like you went to the Ethiopian eunuch. And you opened our heart. You showed us our sin. You showed us our need for Christ. Father, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your call. Thank you for your effective call to us out of darkness and into the wonderful light of God. We trust you. We rest in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.